For those of you who remain, whether here in person or on the live stream, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 19. I have written 19 on my thing, but I know that it's not 19. It's Luke 18, 9 through 14. We'll be looking at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke 18, 9 through 14. This is God's word. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray that God would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, take this parable that may be altogether too familiar to us, Lord, and bring it to life. We might understand what it is you would have us know about yourself what it means for us to receive your justifying mercy. We ask that you would do this for the sake of Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen. So there's a fun little conversational game that we used to play when I did college ministry called Would You Rather, right? There are whole little books with all these questions. It's just questions, questions that are ridiculous on the face of it, but they have the potential to draw out of you all sorts of things to help people get to know you better, what's important to you and why. Ridiculous questions like this. Would you rather have the power of invisibility or the ability to fly? And I realize that maybe this doesn't like fit the normal Presbyterian thing, but like, don't make me ask these rhetorically. Help me out. Humor me. Would you rather have the power of invisibility or the ability to fly? Oh. And all the introverts just didn't say it out loud. <laughs> invisibility. Would you rather have a, a freakishly huge mouth or a freakishly huge nose? Yeah, that's a tougher one, right? Like, or you could be like me and have both. <laughs> Would you rather have a missing finger? Or an extra toe. So you could hide it, right? Oh, there's a bold one out there. Take my finger. Always have the ability to always be required to speak your mind or never say anything at all. Yeah. Yeah, we learn who the introverts and extroverts are with this question. I don't care what I don't care if you know what I think. Um, would you rather always lose 
or never play? I mean, if it goes like most game nights I participate in, I always lose anyway. So now, and this might be my favorite. Would you rather be a giant hamster or a tiny rhino? And, and what we're supposed to learn about one another through this question, I'm not quite sure. But the last one, would you rather die happy or famous? Yeah. Oh, there it is. There it is. Well, you get to know things about people, right? Well, Jesus in this parable gives us his own little would you rather. Would you rather be the Pharisee or the tax collector? And before you answer the question the way you know you're supposed to in Sunday school, we've got to stop and consider why would this be a difficult question? Could it be that we don't really understand the characters in this drama? And so we're going to look this morning at the Pharisee, at the tax collector, and then consider the point. And so the first thing I want us to look at this morning is, is this Pharisee and, and, and grapple with this question. What is he really like? I used to love Taco Bell. It was cheap. You got a lot of food. You could put hot sauce on it if you wanted. And there was a Taco Bell Express right in the walking pathway between my apartment and all of my classes at Clemson. We probably ate Taco Bell eight days of the week. It was so easy for years and until I learned to despise it. And I learned to despise it. I, like I got married and Tracy's like, well, oh, we could just get something from Taco Bell. No, I can't even stand the sign. Can't stand to go into the place. It is it, to me the worst thing. I have barely been able to just eat their French fries when they put those out on occasion. And the reason is one of those times I went to the Taco Bell Express and learned the hard way why it's probably not a good idea to have ground beef just sort of sitting out in the food truck. I didn't start off hating Taco Bell. I learned to hate Taco Bell. Well, we've learned to hate Pharisees. If you've spent any time in the church at all, you have learned quickly that the Pharisees are the whipping boy of all Sunday school classes and sermons. We have grown accustomed to hearing Pharisee as a pejorative, as an insult. We've developed an intentional learned bias against them. But that's not how it always was. The Pharisees in Jesus' day, by and large, were some of the most well-respected people in the community. And even the way Jesus describes this Pharisee points to that respectability. This man was a man who was dedicated to worship. Consider that he went up into the temple just to pray. He didn't have a meeting. There wasn't a presentation that he was giving. He didn't have a sacrifice to offer. He 
had in his heart this longing to draw near to God in prayer. And so he left his home, walked up to the temple mount, found a place there in the temple, and spent time in prayer. And before we dismiss this too quickly, consider how hard it is for us in this busy, busy age to find five minutes to pray. We remember when we lay down to go to sleep at night, oh, I haven't even thought about God today. I should pray now, dear Lord. And then you wake up the next morning. We, we can't even find a minute without pulling out our phones, without listening to another podcast, without turning on the radio, without binge watching something on TV. There's always something to fill our minds and our tension. And then we lament that God feels so far away. This man was dedicated to draw near to God and went up to the temple, was willing to be inconvenienced just to pray. And he prayed, we read, standing by himself. It was customary in this day and age to pray out loud, which is one way maybe to prevent yourself from falling asleep while you're praying. I've never yet fallen asleep while talking. Maybe maybe you give it a go. But you can see how that tradition and that practice can open itself up to abuse. You might go up into the temple, stand in the middle of the court and pray out loud just to impress everybody how holy and spiritual you were and how theological your words were. But this Pharisee didn't do that. He stood by himself. He didn't go up to impress anybody. He went up to meet with God. And he stands by himself privately, not for show, and he prays. And he prays a prayer of thanksgiving. Not taking credit. Certainly he points out the things that he does, but these are in response to his thankfulness to God that he has not fallen into wickedness and rebellion and sin. He doesn't take the credit. He gives thanks because he was a man who was dedicated to worship. And he was dedicated not to just worshiping God in the temple, but seeing that worship work itself out in the totality of his life. And so... He talks about some of the things that he does. He tithes, he gives 10% of all that he gets. And keep in mind, he's not falling prey to the ridiculous argument that we, we spend so much time and ink and energy on. Well, is it gross or net? He tithes of all that he gets. He goes out into the herb garden to pull up some basil for some nice marinara or whatever it is that he had in his heart to make. And he takes 10% of that and he gives it to the Lord. Everything that he has, everything that he gets, somebody gives him a birthday card with $5 in it and he tithes on it. He is constantly thinking, how does my love for God work itself out in the way I handle my possessions and my money? And I don't want to hold on to any of them too tightly. I will give to God a 10th of everything. What? <laughs> Like a tenth of everything. Have you thought about that for yourself? Like what would it look like to give 10% of everything that you get? I 
He doesn't hesitate. And he fasts. And fasting is is not a thing that is commanded of the people of God in the Old Testament to be a regular weekly thing. There are fasts that are commanded, but this fasting twice a week is something that he's chosen to do on his own as a means to deprive himself. Maybe he gives the money he would have spent on that food to the poor. Maybe he spends that time in prayer to draw near to God again, but twice a week. He does what isn't required of him because he's dedicated to living for God and not falling prey to the idols of this world. And here we are in the consumeristic, materialistic United States of America where I'm not sure we know what fasting would be, even if it's required for a medical procedure. Do I really have to? Can I have my coffee? What would it look like for us to give up Stuff that we just take for granted twice a week. This isn't a man who is just looking to lord it over others. He lives this out. His worship's reflected in his character. He's not an extortioner. He doesn't use his position to to. to to take advantage of widows and those who seek advice from him, to take their money from from them. He's not unjust or an oppressor, but seeks to abide by that command to walk humbly and justly with his God. He's faithful to his wife. And he's not a traitor to his people, like the tax collectors are. You can't read this parable with a bias against the Pharisee. He was a good man. He thanks God. He worships God. He serves God. And he's more righteous than you or I could ever hope to be. tax collector, on the other hand, is a completely different character. And maybe we feel sorry for him, but it would help us to recognize like what he's really like. I haven't ever met somebody that actually works for the IRS. And on the rare occasion when I've had to call, I've never made it through the automated menus and spoken to a person except once. I don't know a tax collector. Why are these guys so hated? What are they really like? Years ago, when we lived in South Carolina, one of our friends was out walking her dog with her kids. And this guy pulls up next to them in a beat up old pickup truck and rolls down his window and hands her his card and says, I'm a pet photographer. I can come to your house and take photos of your pets and your children and and." And you can use these for various and sundry things. And if red flags aren't going off in your head at the moment, like they were just going off in her head. And she's like, thanks, but no thanks. And waited till he was gone before she ever approached her own house and went immediately and looked him up. And sure enough, he was on the registry. And as she was telling the story to us, I hated him. 
I'd never seen him. I've never met him. And I hated him. We have in this culture, if we're united about anything, we have a broad dislike, even hatred for pedophiles. And if you can imagine that that is how the average Israelite felt about tax collectors, you're approaching, you're, you're getting close to how much they despised these people. Why? See, the Roman powers controlled that whole land and demanded tribute. They allowed the various nations, Israel and whatnot, to have some degree of autonomy to have their own kings and their own little local councils, but they still demanded tribute and obedience. But the Romans were pretty efficient. They didn't want to have to send the centurions around all the time to collect those taxes, and so the centurions tasked others to do those things for them. And the, what, who better to recruit to collect those tributes than the Israelites themselves? And so there were many who raised their hands and said, sure, I'll help. And in so doing, they betrayed their own brothers. Because these, were, these weren't, tax collectors weren't, in, weren't supposed to be these polite, administratively minded bookkeepers. Oh, they were hired thugs. You owe some money. And if we don't get it, Bad things are going to happen to you. Don't make me call the centurion. These were brothers, fellow worshipers, who aligned themselves with the oppressors of God's people and served them at the expense of their own brothers. And if that wasn't enough, they weren't paid a salary to do this. It was just assumed that as they collected money, they'd collect enough for their own income as well. Because it wasn't like, well, you owe this and you owe this and you owe this and you owe this. There was a quota. We need this much. Go get it. And they would, and they got it. Plus a little extra to line their own pockets. And they didn't care if they got it all from you or they got a little bit from you and a little bit from you. And once they reached their quota, they'd give it off, and then they could still go around and collect money and line their own pockets with it and advance their own cause. They were so despised that the Mishnah, this ancient Jewish text, categorized them in the same class as murderers. Later on, tax collectors were not even allowed to be witnesses in court. What was it that you saw? I saw these three people assault and murder this poor old lady. What is your occupation? I'm a tax collector. Oh, guess there's nothing we can do about it. They weren't believed. They were worse than liars. And as Jesus tells this parable, we're supposed to be left wondering, how is it a tax collector even found his way into the temple? Who 
would let him in? Why would he even bother? What kind of hypocrite is he? This is like a mob boss going to the confessional and asking for forgiveness for all the assassinations he's carried out. Like, it's ridiculous on the face of it. So what's the point? How are we supposed to make sense of any of this? The point is this. We're left to ask this question. Who are you most like? Really? Not what's the Sunday school answer. But who are you really like? See, our familiarity with this parable might hinder our understanding of it. We are, if we were with those first century initial listeners to this parable, we would have been shocked. What are you talking about? Jesus, I've never heard anything so ridiculous. Why? You ever played the, the game? It's not a would you rather game. It's, it's you know, the... You know, what celebrity do you most look like game? Years ago when Facebook was a thing, they used to have a, a doppelganger day, right? And you would just change your profile pic to some famous actor that looked like you. And, and it was always, it's always interesting when people talk about that or when people say, oh, you look like... They never pick like the horribly, ugly, disfigured, terrible looking people. We always pick the... the I have some vague resemblance to Robert Redford like I mean if he didn't have any hair and was sort of you know short and hunched over and not very muscular looked just like him all right we pick the 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 good-looking people the good-looking actresses the good-looking singers because we like to feel good about ourselves to the point that one commentator Dale Ralph Davis on this parable says it might be better for us if we titled it the Presbyterian and the publican. Let's not put so much distance between us and the Pharisee. Because the whole reason Jesus told this parable is because there were some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Oh, how easily do we do that? Just like the Pharisee, we trust in ourselves. We measure ourselves against others. And maybe we aren't as bold about it like the Pharisee. And thank goodness I'm not like this person right next to me. But we think about those people out there and thank God I'm not like Uncle Andrew. My neighbor. That person that works three cubicles down. And we compare ourselves to other people. And we think more highly of ourselves. We judge according to style or practice or habits. We judge communities this way. Well, their coffee's terrible. Don't go there. May as well be talking about a church the way we judge things. We judge according to our expectations. We don't ask. We're not curious. Hey, what's going on? Or 
How can I help? We just say, hey, you know what would be good for you? Don't forget how important these things are. We have all of these expectations and we look down on people because they don't ever seem to measure up to them. And ultimately, we have an insatiable tendency to turn our faith into a way to just be good people. And even when we do fail, even when we do mess up, we, we find a way to turn that into to a, a confession that just reveals how authentic we really are. So we're still better than all the sinners out there because we're authentic. We're real. We're just human. And we look on others with contempt. That's what self-righteousness breeds. Sure, you might work really hard and get a really good job and rise to a place of prominence and have a great reputation and all of these things might be true, but the fruit of that self-righteousness ultimately is contempt. Contempt for anyone and everyone that doesn't measure up to you and your expectations. But the tax collector, he's a completely different kind of person. He comes into the temple and stands far off. He doesn't even find in himself the courage to draw any closer to God than is absolutely necessary. He comes to the temple. He knows he can meet God there, but he just gets there. And he wouldn't even look up to God. It's our custom to fold our hands and bow our heads to pray, but the custom here was to lift your eyes to heaven and And speak aloud, and he can't even bring himself to do that. But not even looking to God. He loses control of his faculties and does something no self respecting Jewish man would do, and he beats his breast in public. In this outrageous display of grief and sorrow, And he confesses and acknowledges his true nature. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. How often do we we hear apologies that are no apologies at all? I'm sorry that you felt that way. I'm sorry you misunderstood me. Events took place, inappropriate things happened, and that brings regret to me. How often do we hear people just own it? I'm a sinner. Not metaphorically, not the way we all are. Like, I have specific particular, deep, rooted in my heart, ways of wickedness and evil that qualify me to be named nothing other than sinner. And this tax collector, for all his faults, 
saw himself truly. And what is so surprising is that Jesus says that this is the man that goes home justified. Literally, this is the man declared righteous by God. It ought to cause us some offense. It ought to make us gasp. It ought to make us wonder, what kind of kingdom of heaven is this that you're talking about, Jesus? If even the good people can't get in. And yet, as the Lord is wont to tell us, there will be many who say, Lord, Lord, look at all the things that I've done for you. And the only response they'll receive is, I never knew you. Because the God of heaven sends the self-righteous away. Without righteousness. Without justification. But he justifies sinners. Literally, the tax collector's prayer Be merciful to me is make, let there be atonement for me. Let there be propitiation for me. Lord, take whatever anger that you have against my sin, whatever wrath that you might have against the things I've done, and find a way, O Lord, to to satisfy that in a way that is merciful to me. And what is amazing is that God answers that prayer. The whole ministry of Jesus reveals God to be that kind of God who came to seek and save the lost, who came to give his life as a ransom for many, who from the very cross in which he was crucified cried out, Lord, have forgive them, for they, they know not what they do. The Lord who, risen from the grave, who has defeated sin and death forever, sends his people out to declare good news that there is now forgiveness of sins in Christ. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we could have a long list of practical applications about what this parable means for how we live our lives. But but really, if we were to distill it down to one point, it's this. What kind of God would you rather seek? The God of your own imagination? That you, together with the Pharisees and those like them, have created a God who is only looking for the brightest and the best. For those who are perfect in every way. A God who demands righteousness if you are to stand before him. Make no mistake, our God is righteous and holy. But he is not the God of your imagination that will be satisfied with the righteousness that you think is good enough to measure up 
to his perfect standard. What kind of God would you rather seek? That kind of God that that is going to require you to be so perfect to stand in his presence or the God that Jesus reveals and declares? A God who redeems the sinner, who justifies the sinner, who is overflowing with mercy and grace and kindness to those who cry out to him. A God who does the work of righteousness that you and I cannot do on our own and draws us near and makes us his people to live for his glory forever. Would you rather be the Pharisee or the tax collector? Would you rather seek a God who requires perfection of you or who works it for you? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would reveal yourself as you truly are, the God who has mercy on the sinner. Restore in us, Lord, a a right sense of the shock that this parable brings. That it might work in us, not self-exaltation, but true humility. A humility that draws us near to you, that leads us to cry out to you with the truth of who we are and the truth of what you need to do for us. God, have mercy on us, sinners. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.